Hi, you're listening to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption-related. Today we share part two of our conversation with Boon Han, Jenny Na, and Kimora Buell, Natalie Lemoyne, three heavyweights of the global Korean adoptee community who have committed decades of their lives to advocating for adoptee rights and social change in Korea. If you're a Korean adoptee who has gone back to Korea and connected with the adoptee community who live there, if you've ever had an F4 visa, which enables us to reside in our country of birth, if you felt comfortable to openly critique the international adoption system, and to challenge the dominant narrative of happily ever after forever families. In that case, you have adoptees like today's guests to thank. The early activists and pioneers of the Korean adoptee community, the so-called angry adoptees. Bunyang, Jenny and Kimura were involved in organizing last week's Adoption Truths Day event, which was created to raise awareness and advocate for Korean adoptee rights. The online conference, which featured speakers from all around the world, will be available to watch on YouTube, and we'll link the details in our social media. In this episode, our guests talk about coming out of the fog, as they say, and why they first became involved in adoptee activism. They also discuss what activism means to them personally, and what they've learned over their many years of experience. Hannah and I were struck by their intelligence, their eloquence, and passion for adoptee rights, but also by their generosity and playful spirits. It was really a pleasure to talk with them all, and we really hope you enjoy part two of this conversation, as much as we certainly enjoyed having it. Bunyang Han is an assistant professor at Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Her research interests include adoption, unwed mothers, family welfare, and the welfare state. She was adopted from Korea to Denmark and returned to Korea in the early 2000s. She has been actively involved with the adoptee community over the past two decades. Jenny Na is one of the six founding members of Adoptee Solidarity Korea. ASK was a grassroots organization that sought to raise awareness to the root causes of adoption, effect change in Korean adoption policy, strengthen the adoptee community, and create a space for critical dialogue. Kimura Pyol Natalie Lemoine is a conceptual multimedia feminist artist who works on identities and expresses it with calligraphy, paintings, digital images, poems, videos, and collaborations. Kimura Lemoine's work has been exhibited, screened, published, and supported nationally and internationally. As a curator, Zia has developed projects that give voice and visibility to minorities. As an adoptee activist archivist, Z is working on ACA, Adoptees Cultural Archives, to document the history of adoptee culture through media and arts. I'm curious when and how you uh, came out of the fog, so to speak, and and you know how that was because I, well, I know for me it was it was traumatic to um, to to really to come to terms with the truth of the whole adoption system and you know my file being completely falsified and yeah um it's quite a process usually yeah i think that's when uh, we realized that adoption uh, i mean that's uh, for me when i searched back in uh, 91 then i found out that uh, i was three years younger and that my name was not my name and so many reasons and uh, my mother didn't know that i was adopted and so it's and then after uh, being volunteer at Holt, and when I saw those uh, birth family coming back and asking, and some adoptees uh, also, I met some adoptees coming to find their record, 
and they were reading the file and I could, I couldn't really see everything, but they were hiding pages. And I say, what do you need to hide? There is something behind that if you hide and the whole control of, and that's, I think for many adoptees, there's a trauma of the search. It's like someone has the power to show whatever they want in your file and on the sake of what. You know, and uh, anyway, sooner or later, and after I found that I had more information in in my orphanage, and then after I had more information at City Hall, so all this information was not in my adoption information. And so I wonder why it was lost on the way. And then that's the whole thing that it's, it doesn't make money for them to know where I'm from and if my uh, family left something behind or not or where I was found and at what time with maybe, you know, like a Joyler Club uh, story where they, she leaves a little bracelet, you know, that kind of uh, cheesy thing. But uh, that's the whole thing. And then after I realized in 89, also my first trip in Korea, I met so many uh, Nordic uh, adoptees. I met from, from France, from the state, from Minnesota. I was like, what the heck? We are all over the world, but only white people. We were only adopted. Because for me, I knew that many adoptees in Belgium, like, you know, Jung from uh, Couleur de Pommiel, uh, approved ah. for adoption or something. The, I think the, the American uh, title, the animation. But uh, we were like a city where it was so many adoptees from Korea. We, we were the new trend of having a little... Uh, shepherd dog or something you know we were the little korean dogs so it's like i thought it was proper to to belgium or some belgian were fucked up or something it's like why do they want to adopt but then after we we, they got better they got vietnamese and vietnamese were nicer than korean anyway so (laughs) but then (laughs) and then (laughs) but you know it's like um and then that's when I realized that it was all over the place, and uh, but only white. So it's like I I, I start to to uh, analyze the fact that uh, it was very targeted, and why why America, why Belgium, and then I understand I understood while I was living in Korea that the num- the phone number system was like in Belgium. So the Belgian like zero two for so zero three for Busan is the same in Belgium. Zero two for Brussels, zero two for Anvers, Antwerp. So it's it's because of that fucking line system, four nine system. There's five thousand adoptees from Korea are in Belgium. So it's all a trading and global, you know. So that's how I understand. And like when the Swedish hospital is so many adoptees, it's like they build those hospitals to make even more adoptees to make even more money. So that's how I get really fed up and. I say I want to become. It's not that I want to become a, a, a an activist, but it's the time that also I was the first adoptee who found my birth family in Belgium. So I, I had the duty to to say it's possible. It's it's possible. It's the only idea because all adoptees around me say, "Why are you looking for for your family? It's nobody. Uh, it's nobody can do that. We can't. We are orphans." So when I went back and I came back with uh, information about my birth family, she said, oh, can you help me? And I said, of course I will help what I can do. It's like I didn't speak English, I didn't speak Korean, but I will help. And that's how I did the association. And then after that, it's uh, more and more, more adoptive skin. That's how it started. 
But this this is good that. Uh, but the first uh, Korean Adoptee Association was in Sweden in '86, and they did the, the first uh, I think Adoptee Act of activism. They demonstrated in front of the Korean embassy, saying that they were adopted and they had rights. So because the Korean embassy was afraid to make a big scandal, they invite them inside and they start the first association. So that's what you have to know as a Korean adoptee. That's part of your history being recognized. And because those adoptees from Sweden, they did something. And so after it was, a uh, um, Nor- Norway did withhold, hold Korea, uh, hold Norway. But the other independent association was Arirang, and then after it was mine. Then after it was many, uh, like uh, France came in 96 or 94. So it's like, it's like people talk to each other in Minnesota. It was not 96 with the, with the church, but at least they had their first association. And then it was New York, aka, and Italy lately, like in 2012, I think. You know, so it's, it's like, um, why adoptees, are so good in making association. Uh, it's like we, we are, it's like, and then the Chinese adoptees now are looking at us because we we set up the the, the path to uh, to ask right to um, to have uh, better facilities or I don't know. It's like, but that's how we we become. It's not that I wanted to become. We wanted. I, I guess I don't know for for you all. But if you wanted to be an activist, it's not. It's because we like something and we understand something that it can be changed. It has. It can be better. It can be better done. It can be understood differently. Uh, and we can. Uh, so that's why I think in that belief we 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 are still uh, fed by that. Anna, you asked about like when did we come out from the fog? Uh, I don't know if if we are out. If I'm out, maybe I'll look back at this interview in a couple of years and say, "Oh my god!" <laughs> um, but and definitely, I mean, when Kimura speaks about, despite having done so much, and then still there is this um, accidental aspect to it. You know, that there is not, it, it was not in the search of fame or a profession, but it was simply just being this individual at this point of time with a certain experience. You know, you have to stand up. You have to walk into it. You have to claim it. You have to, it's a duty. Um, so I think for me, I've never been political active before I came to Korea. Um, I've not, was doing all kind of other regular stuff that we should also be allowed to do. Um, but I think being in Korea, uh, you can't help but not see what's going on. It is so obvious. Um, comparing the stories that we were fed, I mean, and going to the National Assembly, first couple of times, you know, agency workers would talk about how Korea uh, they're, they're specific and you, and very much their archives, you know, they were, they had been bombed by the North Koreans. They had been flooded. And this was, in the, this was not during the Korean war, but there was being the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. And these North Koreans were just everywhere. And you go home and you compare, you know, notes and you look up in the history books and you're like, that's not right. Um, you can't help 
but ask questions. And I think um, that's really that's a big motivating factor for me that there is still this discrepancy between what maybe the big narrative is and what is being allowed to be told and then what I have experienced and what I see from other adoptees. It simply just doesn't match. Um, Adding to that, then there is a lot of abuse and there are all these breaches of human rights in the system. So I don't know why people would not come out and um, contribute to rectifying that or working on that. Um, Being in Korea definitely makes a difference, I think. Um, Korea is also great fun, you know, especially if you have money. Um, But I think as an adoptee, I mean, we, yes, it, it, does not make sense to me to take the high road or it does not make sense just to piggyback, um, take the easy way out. Um, we are really, I think, in an essential part of how Korea is able to be the way that it is today um, came from all these unwanted families. We were erased. You know, so others could live the lives that they want to live. We paid the price. Mm-hmm. Our families paid the price for that. Uh, so I hope we'll choose to, you know, be visible and choose to be part of the official history. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I'd like to do a study someday or some kind of research about all of the times that people have been told that they're records their agency was on fire or that there was a fire and that's why they can't show you their records and is there really a fire did you really have a fire because i'd like to know uh because i was told that story when i went one time and oh and i they showed me the filing cabinet and i was like is that really it was like one filing cabinet and i was like can that really be all the files that you have and she's like here's the files (laughs) and and so I said, well, don't you have other ones? No. Oh, well, there was a fire. <laughs> what the shit? <laughs> no. So someday I would like to investigate. Do it, do it. <laughs> uh, but to answer your question, Anna, she, uh, I think for me, I it, my awakening as an adoptee is... Um, very closely related to my awakening as an Asian person in America, a person of color in America. Um, I think I was pretty white when I was young, growing up with my family. And then when I went to college, that's where I started to sort of recognize myself more as um, a person of color, as an Asian, not really a Korean, but as an Asian. Um, Although... I think I, at the same time, I always had this question of what am I doing here in this family? And not, not, not necessarily in a bad way, but not necessarily in a good way. Just how did, how did I get here? How did this happen? Why am I, why am I here? And then when I, you know, when I came back to Korea, actually, I, I, I didn't really know anything about Korea when I came back to Korea. So I just came back to Korea, um, 
And I remember taking the bus from Incheon into Gangnam and seeing all of the neon. And I, I well, I had actually been to Korea once when I was um, young, uh, in my teens with my mom on one of the motherland tours. Um, and But I remember that experience being, you know, Korea is a more developing country. So when I came in on the bus into Gangnam and I saw all the neon lights and then I stayed in Gangnam for a couple of weeks and just seeing all of the wealth and the money that was there and thinking like, how, how can, and then just living in Korea as I continue to be in Korea, wondering how, how can there still be people who are sent away when you have, when there's all of this, when Korea is prospering, it just, it didn't make any sense. And then the more I learned about adoption, the more, and, and the system that is adoption, the industry that is adoption, the more it compelled me to, it's like, once you know it, you can't ignore it. Um, and I think it's something that, yeah, I didn't really intend to be an activist either, but it's something that I, I can't ignore. And I think we as adoptees are the only people who are, are going to do things for ourselves, try to find the truth of, of what happened to us. Um, we might have allies along the way, but I think ultimately, you know, we're the biggest stakeholders in this group. Um, so we, if we don't stand up for ourselves and our fellow adoptees, then I don't know who The will. thing also, uh, even though I'm not uh, into family myself, but for people who have kids and what we're going to give as a leg, legacy to them. It's like they will want to know why they, uh, their parents were adopted and uh, sent away like this. It's like now we have a, many of my generation have kids of 20, 50, uh, 30 years old, and but even more. And they are questioning also. They have maybe not the trauma that we had, but still they want to know. And uh, But I think it's uh, also for that generation that we have to think about. So I was wondering what you all feel the place of personal stories or personal narratives, um, what, what the place of that is in adoptee activism. For me, it's from the beginning. It's like uh, I remember myself saying to my adoptive mother that she didn't have the right to adopt me because I had a mother. And she slapped me saying, your mother is a fucking bitch and a whore. And I said, okay. But even though she's my mother, I said, that's the start that I knew I was a bad kid. But anyway, I knew what I want and I found her. So I'm very happy. And she was not a whore. She just loved a, a Japanese guy, but that's it. But in the, the thing that I was adopted as a half white kid, they said that my father was white because I had curly hair when I was little. I don't know why. But um, so it's, it's from there that uh, I really start to really want to do something. Because I think uh, the power, I felt that uh, my adoptive mother was like uh, my master, like uh, in slavery, it's like emotional slavery. She had the right on if I, I live or die. And at any time that I was not serving properly, 
even maybe she was not conscious, I guess, maybe power dynamic people take it when they don't feel good in the society on over another kid or another person that is weaker than them. So it's maybe a natural thing. But that's from that time that I decided that I want to, I think the, the adoption system, uh, the race was an issue. The, and it was also when I see slavery, like, um, with, of course, with Afro uh, descendant and the whole dynamic. And then seeing that if, for us, it was a subtle emotional slavery that we had to please our adoptive parents. And we were there for that because they want us to serve them. And we had to obey like a, like a servant. And of course, it's like not, uh, I understood that not every adoptive parents were like that, but it was a system that allowed them to have, and it was no protection for us to even like have a, a say. Maybe it's a very extreme, but I, I know many adoptees of my generation that were like that. I think after we screen better adoptive parents, maybe, but still there is that, this, uh, that, dynamic that is possible and they know they have power so that's my personal feels and do you feel like uh telling your story your like personal circumstances your your personal history um do you feel like that's helped with adoptee activism i guess I guess, in a strategic sense? Uh, for me, I, uh, it's more uh, through the art that I, I feel there is a more niche where people can understand things they don't, don't want to see front in, the fr- in their face. But with the art and the way that I conceptualize con- uh, ideas of adoption, and it's, I think I'm one of, I guess, the only adoptee that continues over the year in her in their, my art practice to uh, mention about interracial adoption, about race issues, uh, colonialism, post-colonialism and so on, and gender issues also because men adoptees have different experiences than female adoptees, I guess, and queer adoptees have maybe different also experiences. But uh, anyway, it's like um, I, I do a lot of videos and I think I each time put a little note of it's it's personal thing, but that's so uh, when it's personal, they c- you can talk the best and you can own the story. But m- I know that what I say it's related to many other people experience, not especially adoptees, but people who've been that well treated. That's my activism in the art. Um, in ASK, the organization that I was in for a long time, uh, you know, we we actually talked about this a lot, whether or not the, the question of whether or not to use our personal stories. Um, and in, in the end, we, we decided not to because we didn't want that to be the only thing that people saw about us. Um, because when we would tell our personal story in the media, or when adoptees would tell their personal story in the media, that's kind of all the media wanted to hear. And um, if we, like in an interview with Korean media, even if they 
knew that we wanted to talk about things related to the adoption system or our critique of adoption, they would start by asking, well, you know, what's your personal story and how do you feel about your adoption? And, and, um, and then they would, you know, they would kind of in a courtesy, as a courtesy would ask the other question that we wanted to talk about, whether we were, you know, if we were organizing an event or um, trying to raise awareness about something. So they would give kind of like, you know, courtesy to us and allow us to talk about that. But what they would print was our personal story. So we didn't want our personal stories to become the only story that was told. Um, and then also um, telling our personal stories, um, kind of as I mentioned, I think led, led to us to being characterized as angry adoptees or um, upset about our adoption. And, and that was the reason why we were critiquing the adoption system. And, and you know, as I said earlier, it, it was people trying to use our stories then to delegitimize the other points that we were we were trying to make. So I've heard, you know, maybe it's different now, but I think our, I think our stories, adoptee stories are still kind of used in that way. So I'm still kind of reluctant to, to talk about my personal story in that way, in the Korean media. Absolutely. I think often um, outsiders, non-adoptees feel that they have a claim to our story and we are situated, I think, in this weird space between private and public. If you're an adoptee, then it's really very difficult, especially as you know, um, Korean adoptees who are mostly placed in white families. We can't really hide, and so that very, very extremely personal and from many painful, traumatic experiences is public knowledge. People feel that they at any time can ask private questions. Mm. I think coming to Korea, I have definitely learned to, I've had to learn to protect myself better mm. and to simply just say no. And if people get upset or can't respect that, that is really on them. It is not on me mm. to um, satisfy their curiosity. Um, they can ask, you know, professional questions and I would absolutely always be <laughs> interested, willing to to. Um, discuss that and take time to do that. But our personal stories is really private. And I think um, non-adoptees and maybe adoptees too have to learn to respect that. We have to um, also be able to set boundaries um, that should not be questioned. I think when Kimura talks about sharing her story, then you know it makes sense to do it when you're able to take ownership of it. And so it's being told the way that you choose to do it in a setting that you choose, in a manner that you choose that's different. Um, I think maybe... For me also, like, it changes all the time. <laughs> so, so people don't know, especially in Korea, I always change stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that's important that, you know, it shows that, that we have power, mm. you know, that it's being done on our terms. I think that's a great way to use our personal experience. Um, I think what I miss from this thing about personal stories is that it's not um, it's not connective to you know adoption theory or narrative in a manner that makes sense to us. That's why it 
was, I agree it was the right choice that asked me to say, no, you know, we're not going to talk about my childhood because right now, you know, I am an adult and I'm here to talk about adoption policy. So that's what we will do. There is no connection somehow between our experience with this, the adoption program and then the program itself, the culture itself or the history itself. So I feel these individual stories, um, unless it's very, very broken people who do it, but many of these personal stories and biographies, they're kind of just floating around out there. I really wish that we had this grand narrative that we could connect them to. So it would all channel into one overall overarching uh, understanding of adoption. But I think as long as it doesn't do that, then um, we are at risk of being corrupted. Our stories, our experiences are at risk of being corrupted. We don't want to contribute to that. I think one story that is kind of missing from adoption history and the adoption uh, story is, is, is our story as an adoptee community in Korea. Like there's not really a, a written history of us. Um, and the we, kind we of are working on something, but it's oh. hard to get published. <laughs> oh. we, we, it's been five years we work on that. But we oh. want to talk about the activism that has been done, and we did a timeline. We did everything. We got archives. Oh, but, you did. Um, so I think you have to talk with Tammy, Chu, uh, Tammy um, Robinson. And I wanted to do a documentary, but I didn't get uh, enough fund. But so, you know, Bunyong, I interview you, but uh, I still uh, well, I think I want to. The world will never see that. <laughs> huh? <laughs> the world will never see that uh, I guess we. Uh, I got the footage <laughs> but I need a, a budget to have better condition of. but I know that if I do a documentary on activists in Korea and what they have done that's what I want to do as an archivist because now I can call myself archivist also um, but I think being located in uh, Montreal, Canada because there's no Canadian activist adoptee. It needs to be accepted now I, I became Canadian finally, that there is no money just about something like that. So, But I, I try to find a way, but it's, it's something in my agenda. And also I, I finish a book. It's, it's not a biography, but it's, I talk not about my adoption, but I talk about my years as a identity evolution since 88 so I was an adult and since my first film so and I talk about Korea my life in Korea and after in Montreal as an immigrant and people of color but um, I think we need more story of adult adoptees and activists who talk about the real stuff. That's why you should screen the Bunyong interview. Just separate. Yeah. Just, you can just have a private screening of the Bunyong interview. Okay, I, I send it to you. <laughs> but the fridge was a problem. The fridge. <laughs> ah, that's true. Yeah, there were sounds there in the background. So that's why I, that's why I want a good condition. I have a studio where I invite people to come and, you know, 
Yeah, because I invite uh, <laughs> I interview also uh, Tanguy Verras, who's in Belgium, and then also uh, Chris Parr. But um, of course, it's like I really want to do a real story on that. Jenny, is that what you were referring to, like the uh, the history of adoptee activism within Korea? Yeah, I think because I I've I've been here so, so long, so long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I've met, you know, there we're such a transient community, and there are always new adoptees coming into the community, and. Uh, you know, there's a certain body of knowledge that exists within the community f for a certain period of time, but then it's a kind of, you know, as those that group of people moves out of Korea, then that information gets lost. And knowledge about what happened during that period of time only resides within, like, the handful of people who are, who are still here and were there then. And so I kind of, I would like to see, you know, something that, talks about the different time periods of, of like when Kimura was uh, first came to Korea and uh, when kind of around the time when, when Ask started and then again after Ask retired and then um, the evolution of, of goal and the, the you know all of those different groups. I think mm. it would be nice to have Anthology, an anthology of uh, adoptee activism. It's like maybe 10 to 15 uh, testimonies of adoptees who did something in Korea. Uh, and uh, so people can understand better also. And it's a, it's a, a mark we can leave for. Because if we don't write it, who will do? So what are you guys um, doing tomorrow? <laughs> Oh, for me, uh, it's Saturday night. Uh, what can I do? <laughs> I think uh, we can do another Zoom and uh, we can, same time, <laughs> we talk. Can we have beverages For me, really, time? I would like to do an anthology, but because my English really sucks. So, uh, but I, I have I ideas, I have concepts and... Uh, I'm on if you all want to do something. It's like I'm really up. We have and I to, think I think. We can ask. Uh, I, I also wanted English to make and, uh, some kind of film. And Korean. Hmm? I also thought it would be great to make some kind of film. And then I could, you know, yeah. for people who come and are new to the community, I could just be like, here, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happened. Here you go. Yeah, but uh, who is producer here? Who? who is Producer, do you know anything? Uh, I thought that was you. I thought you were the producer. <laughs> and I think now with Facebook also, we have different way of activism. It's like a, uh, connecting with uh, other adoptees and the people who, of my age who never thought they were adopted or like, had to think about that now because they see those Facebook stuff, they, they can connect at late age, like late comer. But, um, and uh, because the kids are maybe more involved also because of new technologies. So it's also interesting to see that. It's a different way of also being uh, 
activists. Well, that's that's a really good seg to one of our other questions, which was um, how would you define activism, or what does activism look like and feel like for for all of you? I don't think I see myself really as an activist. But you are. Come on. Without. But what do you well, think but that's a- an like, activist I do is? Stuff. Yeah. So um, is that why you wanted me to talk first? Because I'm like, oh. I'm in deep water or something, but um, I think activist is not per se uh, a a profession, or I'm not sure what skills comes with being an activist, right? If you say you're a writer, then you can write. If you're a singer, then you can sing. And I don't really know what comes with being an activist. And I think that's why I have difficulties claiming that. Um, Instead, I have been able to go to college and do all these degree programs. So I think I would rather see myself maybe as someone who would like to be in academia, be a social worker. And then through that work, I want to obviously do stuff. Uh, Social work should be about change. So maybe in that way, I'm an activist coming from a background of social work and yeah academia or something academia is not really a background but but uh, don't you think you have to kind of be an activist within your social work field in korea because of how different social work is in korea from what you might have understood it to be in denmark or what you might uh, what you might idealize it to be I think I would just say, I mean, I'll be a social worker, and that's how I see social work. I don't know if I have to claim the activist title also. Um, I mean, I'm not really on Facebook. I'm not on social media, which is, I think, how a lot of people conceptualize activism now. Um, that doesn't mean I don't do stuff. Right? Um, I'm not... So maybe I can claim that title, but um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's because maybe I don't quite understand what you're supposed to do as an activist. So many things like Rosa Park. She just stay yeah. sit uh, when the guy told her. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, That's you want thing. to do. I think you can do what you want. So That's you want to do something. So. Yeah, but, so that school. But also, I don't. I feel both activist and actually artist is something that people are really quick to claim. And I don't quite like that. Um, some people, you know. Tread lightly. Well, I have to finish my sentence. <laughs> okay, sorry. Because some people have really committed themselves and are really deliberate in their efforts. You know, some people are maybe lucky and, and just be they're there at the right time. And they do an action that is seemingly, uh, yeah, ordinary. But look, when we look back at it in history, I mean, it's like not getting up from your seat in a bus, you know. Um, I think neither Rosa Park or uh, Kaepernick planned to be these big icons, but they were able to do the right thing at the right time. Um, so just to jump into that and say, oh, I am an activist. I want to myself with what uh, historical figures have done. I 
can't do that. And I feel the same for some, a lot of, I feel, people and also in the, the adopted community, they claim to be artists. Just because you have a pen in your hand and paper and you can draw a thingy, that, to me, that doesn't make you an artist. Um, I mean, some people are professionally trained, you know, and they have studied and um, they have read, they understand all these aspects and layers. Then it makes sense. So, yeah, without some training, and then each field requires different types of training. But I sometimes I feel some titles can be watered out or they can be, you know, inflated with other descriptions or corrupted. And social work is one of them. You know, volunteering to deliver rice does not make you a social worker. <laughs> like holding your friend's hand when they're in the hospital doesn't make you a social worker. <laughs> so um, maybe just the frustration over this muddy, muttering, mudding waters um, where nobody knows really, <laughs> to me a little bit, they don't know what they're doing. They don't take responsibility. There is no accountability. Um, there's very little professionalism. I think I go more and more to the other side and say, now I really only want to be in this category if I have to be a category. So um, activism, I think I quite, I, I don't quite understand that. I'm interested in social change. I think for me, that idea of creating change, social change, it is one of the definitions I have of activism. Um, you know, I didn't, I certainly didn't set out to be an activist or to, to make change for something, but I saw something that was wrong and I felt like I couldn't not do something about it. And it was something that I felt strongly for myself and for, for us as a group of adoptees. So that also makes it actually kind of hard to walk away from it ever because, um, as I said before, I think, you know, it's it's something that we adoptees do for our, should do for ourselves, um, and almost have to do for ourselves because other people won't. And then that means that we have to to step up and we have to take the initiative to to try to create change together. So when I first came to Korea, like I I didn't know uh, Kumura or the adoptee community really. And so I didn't really think that there was anyone standing up for me or my rights or adoptee rights or that there that adoptees really had any representation. It seemed like the the stories about adoptees were mostly created by other people who were not adoptees. Um, and so I think that was one of the things that motivated me to try to be involved or try to to change that and support other people who were also trying to change that. For me, I'm really totally opposite of uh, Bunyang <laughs> because uh, I claim myself as an adoptee, uh, as an artist, and as uh, an activist, and now archivist. And I'd never studied anything. So it's, uh, I, um, I think I learned on the way, maybe I did many mistakes, but uh, I'm responsible for it. But also, as a human being, I minimize a maximum of my action to not be too dam damaging, damaging, if I can say. But I think, um, for me, 
Uh, I didn't want to be anything that a housewife. It was my dream when I was little, but I found out that I was not really uh, into guys. In, but anyway, it's like for me, it's like the fact that I, for me, activism is to decide when you see something wrong is to take an action. Action doesn't mean uh, like uh, being loud or anything. It can be just notifying that is something wrong and then you don't agree with that that's how allies can be that's how and it can go to uh spending nights and nights uh maybe uh, folding uh flyers for distributing what you believe in social changes of course it's like a, when you think something wrong it's it's, it's uh, your beliefs but um i think you can be an activist for a few days. Uh, I mean, it's like something, uh, a learning thing. But if really, it's not, for me, it's not a career to be an activist. It's, it's just a, a state of mind where you have the energy to put in and you really have strong belief and it doesn't have to be your whole life. It's like even for, I don't know, for me, it's, it's, for me it's because I have plenty of time and I have a, a lot of energy. I don't like to sleep. So I do stuff, but doesn't mean that I feel that everything is activist also, but it's, uh, I, tr I want uh, people to hear whatever they want to hear. But if I don't put there, it's like people will never hear anything. So it's like, for me, it's like, if I don't do it, it's like, who's going to do it? And of course, uh, over the time, I learned how to do it a way that maybe I can reach people I really want to reach and put my energy in people I want who I believe they maybe will change a little bit. But I think also over the year and the experience is to learn how to make correlation for people to better understand the differences that is people who are not adopted can understand a feeling that we have because it's about adoptive fields. <laughs> so um, I think it's, it's really important for making people understanding something that they are not aware at all. And it takes time also for you to to shape the, not the weapon, but like uh, the, the technique you want. And it's, it takes a life to do it. And also a life for people to believe that you do something. And maybe, maybe people will maybe never recognize and it's fine because you, in yourself, you believe in what you do. But for me, it's like I'm so tired. Uh, for me, I'm myself very strong about that label of being an activist. I don't say I'm the uh, good activist, but I am an activist with the good and bad because I don't have a family life and that's why I have a privilege, but it's a choice also because I cannot be an activist and have a love life or family life. So it's also a choice, but or, um, because being an activist as a good uh, person in your family is also an act of uh, trying to make it better for, for people you believe that they need rights or, you know, it's, it's so many different layers. For me, activists is so many different layers. So, and it's not one way to be an activist. It's so many different. Yeah, I think. As for artists, it's like people cannot, like for me, I cannot draw, but I'm an artist. I feel I'm an artist because uh, I have concept and whatever people like or not, but you can talk to some people. People think is really ugly and meaningless. It's like, it's fine, but, I know that there are some people who might appreciate my work. I don't call art, but I call work. And that's how it is. And 
I cannot uh, deny that. If I have to wait for people to get approbation of what I do, it's like uh, then I can die now. You know, I do. Uh, I think many people do stop because, and also your podcast is because you believe in something. You believe that people who will listen to your podcast can change their mind or understand or see themselves in what you share and stuff. So it's your time. Time is money in some ways, but it's also about what you use that time for. So I'm an artist. I was just going to react to what Camaro was saying um, about how activism can be so many different things and it can be all of these small things that maybe, you know, not anybody will ever see but you or you or the small group of people that you might be doing something with. Um, but still you do it because you believe in it. And I don't know if the activism label is keeps people away from doing certain kinds of things certain kinds of stuff related to adoption or you know whatever the movement is um because i don't know if the expectation is that you have a certain kind of knowledge or that you you know have to do it in a certain way that you have to go out and carry a sign or you have to um you know yell into a megaphone (laughs) or it you know it doesn't have to be that it can be so many other things and um so i don't know if that's something that if activism actually hurts us or helps us as a community of adoptees trying to as adoptees trying to to create change push for change i think it has negative uh, um, and positive thing it's like, but people would, uh, if they see activists and they say, oh, again, an angry thing. And then by the way you are, they get to know you and they understand that you're not like what they thought what was an activist. So you win something, but you cannot force people to try to uh, understand. Uh, everybody has stereotype also, and there is a stereotype in activists being loud, being this and this and this. But um, I think every human being can show a different way and then that's how people can be accepted better in getting people's action or maybe non-action also sometimes to not validate some stuff also. I think there's definitely that negative stereotype about activists within the Korean adoptee community, at least, that um, activists are angry and that perhaps they usually had some kind of negative personal adoption experience and that's why, you know, um, yeah, that, that's what motivates their work or something like that. Um, and I always, like... <laughs> I just feel like saying, you know, when I when I see those stereotypes occasionally on social media and things like that, it's like I feel like saying, do you realize like how much that like our community personally owes to so-called angry adoptees? Like do you I mean, you know, even just the F4 visa, it's it's such a big deal. Like that is such 
I mean, it would be so difficult for us to be here with, without something like that. I, I mean, I think there's just so many gains that, um, that as a community as a whole that, that we owe to um, a small, a pretty small group of very committed people. <laughs> I think I would say in respect of the people who are actually committed to activism um, and who sincerely, deeply believe in what they're doing and believe in social change, then I don't want to throw that label around too easily. Um, I think that's my um, hesitation to use it. Um, and then... I'm wondering if Kimura's definition of activism is you see something wrong and you do something. Uh, I wonder if that is not democratic participation. Is that not how we all should live? Um, but that's another discussion. Yeah. So I think really to, yeah, in respect of those who are committed and to those who don't just do stuff when it's convenient and when they get likes on Facebook. Um, I think activism and being an activist can be so powerful. So we really don't want to water it out. You know, I don't want it to be a title that everybody can just claim, you know, because they put a picture on Facebook. Um, to be serious about activism, you have to be I think so much more um, persistent uh, and then some people have you know decades records you know with decades of efforts um, that matters uh, and then, uh. yeah but uh, you have always new activists and Maybe they will mm. not label themselves as activists, but yeah, all yeah, the I time people will tell, oh, you were an activist. And so it's, it's always better when someone else tells you that mm. you, you're an activist, that of course yourself. <laughs> but uh, I think after 30 years now, I can say that uh, I am. But I think ten, uh, like, uh, when I, 10 years, uh, when I arrived in Korea, I didn't consider myself as an activist because I didn't know much. It's only, I think, when I, when I came to Montreal that I realized that I was missing that kind of uh, activism that I was doing in Korea and all the people who could understand me because we had the same concern about Korean society, adoptees' rights, and, mm. and so on, that I was, I mean, uh, far from the eyes, far from the arts, but we, we say that in French, but I think I still... Thanks to the media, <laughs> I could still uh, be connected with, with you and uh, know what was happening in Korea. Of course, I was kind of distant and I couldn't act that much, but I did in, in different ways and with videos that um, I screen uh, in festival and some sometimes I get uh, email from people, then adoptees can can recognize themselves in uh, videos, but it's, I think it's, it, it's, uh, we have to encourage uh, the beginner because it's like, uh, as newcomer, uh, as new, we, we, we are full of energy, but then we are, uh, that's why I think it's like elder can maybe frame that energy a bit because sometimes it's all over the place and sometimes 
I think as a maybe a new adoptee, you never been recognized, and so they need to to get uh, like the ego thing. It's like everybody has an ego, but even maybe more an adoptee in Korea who was not recognized as a human, maybe as uh, he or she wants. So there is, if we have to be uh, acknowledge this past to accept, but also to say to to be a, how do you say, a mentor. I think we, uh, we need to be mentor uh, activists for the new one because then it, that's how we can continue the chain of uh, doing uh, changes. But we have, of course, it's like newcomer and so people, so many, for me, it's like, it was a disappointment for me when I was in Korea, but also it was the visa problem. So many adoptees were so, yeah, I'm going to change the Korean society. I'm going to help you in your association. And after three months, they left. But I was, of course, because I stayed that long, even maybe not legally or not uh, so legal. <laughs> but because I stayed that long, that they couldn't forget me. And I was always in their face and uh, speaking bad English, bad Korean, whatever. But I was there. And so... But then now you can say, so it's like, you know, people, the, that uh, handful of adoptees, uh, activists, it's like they're still there, so they cannot deny you. And that's the, uh, your presence is an, an, act, an activist of uh, being on that land, you know? For me, I wish uh, if Korea was not that uh, homophobic, I would be there. It's like, that's what I say. It's like, uh, I have to deal with different things. And in the way that it's like the target of uh, activists is like the, for uh, adoptees who blame us to be activists and maybe dare and uh, be angry or whatever, it's the same target of feminine uh, gay guys. It's the, the first target and people blame them to be so feminine and so, so this, so not in the right thing. And they are the one who get all the shit from people. But they are the one who changed because it disturbed people, the mainstream people. So it's like we have this uh, head of uh, being visible because we want things to change. It's easy for people to complain about us, but we are there. And, and uh, some other people will come when we are too tired, I guess, I hope. Well, that's why I think... Uh, yeah. The, the thing you said about mentorship is also important in our community, fostering leadership and, and trying to bring other people along with us um, and trying to create new leaders so that, or not create, but, but empower new leaders so that, so that they feel like they have license over the, over this kind of work and the, these issues and that they feel like they can take them to the next place, whatever that might be. There are a lot of things that we could follow up on, but um, you've mentioned a little bit um, about like burnout um, and, and, you know, building, I was wondering, you know, over your years of experience, um, doing this kind of, kind of work, what have you learned perhaps about building momentum and, 
maintaining energy and burnout? <laughs> Is this a dark question? It's a, a very <laughs> difficult question. Uh, I think building momentum is hard because uh, within the Korean adopted community that lives in Seoul, um, our community is so transient. So new people come in and old and other people leave, and there are always people coming in and out, and there are only you know a handful of people who stay. And so it's hard to build momentum when you kind of feel like you're always starting over again. Um, and then also, and then that doesn't even touch on like reaching a broader um, adoptees, communities of adoptees in Europe or the States or Australia or, and burnout is always there. <laughs> burnout is always almost hovering over your head. <laughs> head about to come down upon you like a big brick <laughs> um, because you know we all I, I, I we all have other jobs um, as Bunyang said activism isn't a job it's not <laughs> and in, in the most practical sense in that you know we don't really get paid for what we do um, so so then you're always having to kind of juggle between doing adoption-related stuff and doing your job. And it's hard. It can be difficult to kind of keep going if you... Also, like, the slow pace of change. There's changes. Change happens slowly. And so it can be hard to keep going if you feel like, you know, you're running and running and, and then only just this small, this small thing has changed. And you're running and running and then only just another small thing has changed. And, and so that can be hard to... to to keep going when you feel like that. So I'll just continue my line of uh, <laughs> critique of the whole activism thing. <laughs> um, I don't think it's activism when you meet, you know, three friends and drink coffee and you live a really comfortable life otherwise. Um, and then I guess I feel that's some of the things I see and I'm not sure if they should be published. Um, if I want to be able to show my face in Seoul again. Um, but going back to, so activism is about you see something that is wrong and you want to do something about it. Um, that could be on an individual, I guess, on a smaller level or a smaller scale. It could be at a more public, um, knowing that adopted in itself is a challenge and then living in Korea is a challenge. I do think that we sometimes mix up, you know, the personal need to just be around peers with like, I'm doing political work now. I think those two are different, like the personal relationships and the discussions that we have with our friends, they might filter over to political activism, but I'm not sure if I would count that, though, as activism. Um, so with burnout, I think we just have to be realistic. I have definitely <laughs> made some very conscious decisions about the now I do adoption work and now I don't. Because it is a small community and most of us are friends and then we're also colleagues, but we're not really maybe 
either, or we are maybe both or not. Um, and I think that can make it stressful and difficult to navigate because if we are involved with adoption, then it's because we're interested, you know, and this is meaningful and important to us. But we also need, so that can be, I think, a dangerous gray zone where it ends up being just, you know, talking about yourself and talking about adoption. And then what happens after that? <laughs> um, but this is caring. This is self-caring also. It, it can be a way to bring activities mm. smoother. I mean, when you say you drink coffee, uh, we, you have three people <laughs> drinking coffee, you, you have a nice <laughs> apart, you don't have money problem. But depending, if you talk about, uh, mm. oh, my dog is sick and what can I do, blah, blah, blah. blah. But if you talk about stuff that maybe are real mm. to you, like uh, your impression mm. on something or your feeling about something, and then just talking about it and verbalizing and someone else to hear that and maybe processing it, it's a new information that maybe they didn't know it exists or like they didn't see the same way. So it's sharing, it's a process of maybe being an activist. Maybe the result will not be an activist act. But it's, it is, um, that's why it's important to take time to, to, to nurture uh, yourself with friends and different kind of people so you can have different, uh, and even you don't talk about uh, being adopted, but you are, I mean, depending, you say you are three, I guess, adoptees or three different people also, but uh, it's also learning about each other reality that uh, for you, for me, it's like uh, when I met uh, Kate, she was an American and I said, what the heck? I don't want to meet American. Mm -hmm. But then I learned so much from her because she, she was talking her neurotic <laughs> thought, but it was really interesting for me because I never thought that way. And yes, we, we were partying, coffee, soju, whatever, but it's it, it it's still in my mind because it's like it helped me to grow and see different things. So it's of course it's like de depending what you say and and how people suck your energy and what you want to give as energy. But also it's uh, between adoptees among ad uh, among adoptees. Uh, you also self care in the taking time. If you but you have to respect yourself also. It's like you have limits. Everybody has limits. So you, I think over the time we, we learn about the limit we can give to individual, to the cause, and but also it's a balance between your, you're just not an adoptee also, you have uh, hobbies, you have a passion for the stuff. So you have to keep a balance so you're able to navigate in this world, not like crazy. And I think that's how what we learn over the time. Hmm. But for me, uh, and I think what I learned in Canada, especially self-caring, is like, what the heck is that new concept? It's like, <laughs> hello. <laughs> it's like, when we, f we first started meeting, it's like, how do you feel? I said, why should I say how I feel? It's like, and it's so Canadian, but it's cute in the way, but then... Okay, the answer will tell you how I feel. And I don't feel good because this shit and so on. But then sometimes when someone says something, it's a different reality you didn't expect, you know, especially if you don't meet only, for me, I don't meet many adoptees here. But also uh, I met some adoptees who have so much self-hatred and uh, they were uh, the, the reason they had in themselves. And 
for me, just, okay, I, I got a coffee with her or a beer and we talk. And then I say, what the heck do you see yourself that way? Why, uh, what is that colonized mind you have? And then talking and I don't say she's bad, but then I say, maybe you can think differently or even like for dating apps, she said, oh, I have a hard time because I'm a Korean adoptee. I said, no, I mean, first uh, on the apps, we see that you are Asian. We don't see you are adopted. So it's like all these things that also talking with people is like unfolding stories or like learning different way of thinking. And myself also, I learn a lot from people saying, what do you think that way? It's like, it can be that way. And this is all the conversation, the human conversation. We are human. I think maybe just in our work and in our personal relations, it's important to go into it with some awareness and intention. Mm -hmm. So maybe rather than what you do, but why you do it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you put meaning into it. And I think with this podcast too, you know, we could have talked about a lot of other stuff. You know, we could have come unprepared, but we do this with a certain intention because we do hope that someone will listen to it, you know, and maybe, you know, be inspired or encouraged or motivated. And so I think in any... Yeah. Also share the information to someone else. Maybe not for themselves, but they say, oh, I heard this. Maybe you can listen if you think about that. So I think that's my... Looking at some of the things that goes on in Korea, um, that would be my concern uh, that uh, there's attention to to maybe interest in being seen or appear to do, but no, mm. when it gets really tough, <laughs> um, when nobody's looking and when there is no likes on Facebook, then the people who are still around um, seem to decrease very fast. Mm. Um, And so I feel in that way, you know, taking the title of activist, if you don't see it come, if you don't see that activism also comes with responsibility and accountability, that's a problem. And we shouldn't do that to ourselves or our community. No. If you don't want to participate, I mean, mm. it's a shame. Um, but maybe mm. taking up space or pretending, you know, all of these things are really harmful and they're unhealthy. So in that way, hopefully, you know, we, we can get to write our book in three years. Uh, we can talk <laughs> about some of the history, the, uh, our official yeah. history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe, Bunyang, some of the things that you're talking about are like specific to um, like the millennial generation and like social media age. Um, yeah, that like performative aspect of activism and, and allyship. I mean, social media is really powerful. Um, like the Arab Spring. <laughs> So it's I, I can't be anti-social media, even though I'm not really. It's a powerful tool for, I think we all know, for good and bad. If you're really good at it, I mean, that makes a difference too, right? That's something that my generation can't. 
that's definitely something I can't and I'll never learn. I don't understand. Um, so maybe that could just be an additional tool in our toolbox. Um, yeah, I was just, I would still hope that talking long term, that people are willing to take, uh, willing and interested in, you know, some of the difficult things. Because if we ultimately all just do one thing in one way, that might not be enough if we talk about, you know, uh, we talk about human rights, we talk about injustice, we want to talk about the Human Rights Commission, rectifying the past. These are very big words and big ambitions. Um, so we might have to, you know, get uncomfortable. We might have to get our hands dirty. So only sticking to what you know, I think, is a little bit dangerous. Maybe before we move on to our fun little, uh, hopefully fun, rapid fire question segment, is there anything else that anyone wanted to add or? I think don't be afraid to be an activist or adoptee involved in uh, the Korean social changes. And uh, if you don't have uh, time or you don't want to know more, you can also give to uh, those associations it works for. To talk about other, to other people that it exists, that we, we exist. Not just a like, share. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Take a step. Participate. Come and join. Uh, come and join us. Kimchi slap you. <laughs> <laughs> That's how angry we are. <laughs> is that the new challenge? That is not the spirit of participation. No. <laughs> <laughs> the kimchi challenge. Slap yourself. I think you yeah. should. Go, I think you should go first then. <laughs> and you can show us all how yeah. it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's start. Let's start with the e an easy one. Okay, so, what's your favorite comfort food or comfort drink? Poutine. <laughs> Poutine with kimchi. Ooh. Oh my god, that oh. sounds good. That sounds good. It's a Quebec thing, huh? But normally, it's like I like French fries from Belgium, but. <gasps> Because I stayed too long in, in Quebec, in Montreal. Now I eat poutine and I put my kimchi and mayonnaise. It's like delicious. Ooh, wow. I want to try it. Ooh, I want to uh, eat yeah. that. <laughs> and then if you have also a bit of spam on it, oh my God. <laughs> oh, why do you ruin it with spam? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I love spam oh. to be. You know, like from Hawaii. Oh my God. <laughs> Jenny, Bunyan? Uh, these days, I'm into this... Uh, <laughs> it's this box of nachos that you get at the, the piano drum in Korea. <laughs> it's what it's a box. Crazy. It's literally like a, a cardboard paper box. And then inside, there's like a little bag of nachos. And there's like a little bag of either nacho cheese or salsa, depending on which, which one you buy. But the the chips are really good. They're really like nacho chips, like actual nacho. They are like the card, like there's one brand of nacho chip that you can buy that's like round and kind of cardboardy and it just doesn't taste very good. But this one is like the chip is like light and crispy. And then the nacho cheese is really good. And it comes in a box. 
<laughs> Take a picture and send it to us. Take a picture. Uh, are the chips salty? They're salty. Oh, yeah, they're, like and they're not, they're oh. like sufficiently salty. They're not like too salty, but they're just salty enough, and they go like perfectly well with the cheese. Now, I have to say, I wouldn't recommend the salsa one. The salsa nacho box is not as tasty because the salsa is kind of sweet. And I'm kind of sensitive to like overly sweet ah. things that are not supposed to be mm. sweet. And the salsa is kind of too sweet. So don't buy the salsa one unless you like sweet things. But the cheese one, oh, the cheese one is like the best. Take a picture, okay? <laughs> Next time. Bonyang? Um, I don't discriminate against dessert. So I would be happy with oh, any yeah. ice cream, cake, <laughs> soda, pancakes, all of the Whoa. above <laughs> at any time. <laughs> so what is something about yourself that people might find unexpected? Something surprising about yourself, perhaps. I'm not Korean. I'm half Korean. Mm. <laughs> That's what we were talking uh, about, Jenny. I'm half Japanese, half Korean, yeah. and Jenny said I was the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's true. So that's why I, I think I have to do double effort to to gain my apologize to Korea as a Japanese uh, from my Japanese ancestor. They did wrong to Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Uri Nado Iroke Seng Akan Jiman. Yane, Chisamita, Chisamita. Oh, Miani. In Korea, you always have to go out, you have to meet people, you know. Like, eating is, is so important here um, in, in socializing. So the one surprising thing apparently about me and very annoying thing is that I was slightly afraid of cheese. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't like all those restaurants where they add cheese and stuff. As an ex-vegan yeah. that went to visit Korea, I, I completely yeah. uh, <laughs> feel you on that one. But I'm vegan no more, so that was better last time I went. Oh, no. Oh. Jenny, something unexpected. Oh, I thought we would be distracted and you would forget that I <laughs> your What you doing there? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I think if you don't know me, uh, you would be surprised to learn that I really like to get down in an Oribam. Yeah, we know <laughs> I said, if you don't know me, that's why I said, if you don't know me. Jenny was a dancer and, and Jenny has moves. Oh. Yeah. Oh. They're not good moves though. They're just moves. No, they're very impressive. We want a video. They're just, they're just rhythmic flailings. A video, please. <laughs> I feel like this like inner kind of showgirl comes out or something <laughs> in the Noriban or like um, even a bar, you know, depending if there's like a, a staircase or a, a pole. 
Oh, oh yes, <laughs> definitely the pole. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that there's pole norebang in Korea? Oh my god, that's so exciting! Oh my god, yeah. I went to norebang once, and there was a pole in it. <laughs> Okay, that's for you. I've been meaning to return it, return to it ever since. <laughs> Thank you so much, all of you, for um, yeah, speaking to us and giving us your time and sharing your uh, all of the amazing stuff that you've all been working on for for so many years and um, all the energy you put into everything you do. Thank you so much. It was um. It was a lot of fun, and um, and I know it's been like a mammoth recording session, but um, I guess we were so excited to get like the three of you together, and so we were like, oh, ask them everything. Just, <laughs> 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 it's a reunion. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Send the cheese to me. Yeah, oh. okay. You can do an exchange, you are closer than me and uh, you know. <laughs> Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast or send us an email at adoptedfeels at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And if you'd like to further support the podcast from as little as a dollar a month, please head to patreon.com forward slash adoptedfeels. I wish that Google Hangouts had the, um, you know, those like Zoom emojis. Uh, so cause I, I wanted to be like the clap sign at so many points I know <laughs> I know I was like I'm having feelings <laughs> oh no feelings I know you mean you're having a, are you having feelings on the adopted yeah. feelings podcast that seems like it's still very uncomfortable for my uh yeah my Virgo logical mind I'm like oh <laughs> What do I do? <laughs> also, I'm still just like, yes, we got Jenny on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh You're going to make me turn my sound off now. <laughs>